Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. This is Peter Katz. On today's show, we have Caitlin Burns, transmedia producer at Starlight Runner Entertainment. She has worked on blockbusters such as Pirates of the Caribbean and James Cameron's Avatar, as well as her indie transmedia project, McCarran Park, that launched at the Tribeca Film Festival Interactive and screened at New York Film Festival Convergence. Uh, what has been really exciting is I've been finishing up the final work on McCarran Park, which was my independent project outside of Starlight Runner. It's a parody reimagining of the 1993 classic Jurassic Park in modern-day Williamsburg. Instead of paleontologists going to Costa Rica to examine the world's most amazing amusement park, it's a bunch of no-good hipsters looking for the world's greatest loft party. But the problem that the groups face is the same, dinosaurs. I love uh, it. It came out a couple years ago, and it was it was distributed as a bar crawl of Williamsburg. So it was it, you would download it on your mobile phone uh, in Movable Feast Mobile Media, which is a great uh, free to use service to do uh, geolocated walking tours and stories. Um, you can put video and text and audio in there, and basically you would follow this map. Uh, through the streets of Williamsburg with your friends. Uh, a number of the stops would put you out in front, in front of various eating and drinking establishments of note, and you would follow through the entire length of a movie. And that movie, it, it was fantastic. Uh, one of the first people to do the, the bar crawl itself was Matt Bullish at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and he had a screen, an annotated version of the film. So how, how we did the whole thing um, at the New York Film Festival uh, in 2012. So that was a pretty amazing moment, being able to show this fantastic hipster dinosaur movie that we made out of a love of no-budget monster movies uh, at Lincoln Center. And what's really exciting about it is the part we're in now, where it's been out as a bar crawl, we're putting it together into a final cut, we're also putting together the final book. Uh, and our goal was always to make something that you really couldn't make with a lot of money, a, a really low-budget, low-to-the-ground monster movie that we would do out of love and out of fun. And we ended up with a really very funny and very um, higher quality than I ever expected it to be final product. And now we're putting together the book that describes all of the different ways that Without a budget, you can still approach making a multi-platform transmedia project, how to integrate social media with your rehearsals, how to create events that double as filming screenings, and how to interact with your audience in that way. And it, it's been an amazing trip. We started it in, I want to say, 2010. And the biggest learning experience is how long it takes to do something when you have absolutely zero budget. But... It happens. It can happen. Everyone can do it. If they want to make a thing, they can and should. I, I'm excited about it. You know there's a lot of hipsters in L.A. There, there definitely are. And we, one of the things that we wanted to do with it, but I'm not sure it ever really was able to pick up, was to do some sequels in other towns or to get other creators to be able to take a crack at seeing what the hipster and the dinosaur culture in their cities were. It's it's great what you're doing here because sometimes you go on the the weeklies and you see what's going on the week on the weekend and different restaurants, but it doesn't connect. There isn't any connective tissue that brings together all sorts of ways you could experience your uh, your city. I, I mean, just Foursquare, but like, how many badges do you want? <laughs> yeah, and that's that's something that's always been interesting to me. I'm not 
really in love with technology as a person. It's fantastic what you can use with technological tools, but I come out of physical theater. You know, going to a theater or going to an abandoned warehouse and having a big theatrical experience where, for the most part, things were made just with people and whatever we could scrounge together. And that was true whether it was professional theater or not, to be perfectly honest. So thinking about how a human interacts in a, with a human creative endeavor. How is it that the person is going to interact with this space and what's meaningful to them? Um, I've always approached how you can use a platform or how you can use a technology with that community theater background. What is it that the person in the room with this object is going to be experiencing and how is this going to elevate the experience by using this tool? It makes perfect sense. It feels that a lot of the audiences uh, to you know different forms of entertainment they're almost there's like a glaze over their eyes because they're constantly checking their Facebook or Twitter or different things and it's such bite size it's almost such meaningless information where it becomes where the audience might have a short term memory that just they're this in this kind of track and by creating something in the physical space you could disrupt that and create a meaningful experience that is worth sharing. Well, it's it's about the idea of. There's been a lot of articles lately and a lot of conversation that I've been involved in about the difference between your audience as an object and your audience as a subject. What I want to create in the work that's being that I'm doing is a subject where we can start a conversation, where we can have a dialogue, where in some way, shape, or form, I'm asking a question and I want responses and the answer that one member of the audience has for it versus another isn't going to be the same. And that conversation is going to be what makes it exciting, what makes it interesting. And the conversation about that story that exists on different platforms adds to it, becomes more exciting because there is something new. But for me, if, I st if I'm thinking about something, I want to be keeping it from the human, the audience perspective. I don't want to be creating something that is very neat and cool and shiny, but kind of exists as a subject in a box that that has a, a framework around it that doesn't spark that dialogue, doesn't ask for that participation. And well, you know, this is something that I see a lot when people talk about tech and software companies. What is the human side of what's going on? Is your audience this nebulous void that's going to give you money? Or is your audience someone you're doing something for? What is it about this project that makes it an essential tool for your audience, whether it's a piece of narrative work or a new technology? Why is it useful? Why is it important? And you mentioned that you're creating this immersive experience on a low budget. What other projects inspired you as you produced this and you worked out the story and everything? What other, like collaborators that you've seen out there and contemporaries that you see able to stretch a dollar to create a unique uh, story? Well, I think that there are a lot out there, but they don't get as much distribution as the things that we see um, getting the bigger budgets. I, I think that there are a lot of good examples since we've started that have really made names for themselves in the past two years versus the past five. I mean, Lizzie Bennet Diaries while it had a great Kickstarter run and obviously had a budget, sort of embodies the next step for what we wanted to start doing. Um, being able to build something with a budget that builds its audience in very clever and, and exciting ways, but keeps its, its actual budget requirements 
the cast, the setting, the technology to a very uh, pared down amount that allows you to really fall in love with the characters in the story and be and begin to think about what's going on behind it and challenges the, the notion of what the work was in its original novel form, um, but also kind of takes it back to there as well because when novels came out, people thought they were going to overtake the real world, that people were going to fall into novels and never come out. They were going to be immersed and stop participating in their daily lives. And I think that's something that resonates really well with the space we're in now. If we can create really moving pieces of art and we can do it with the platforms at hand, you're going to see the same sort of ability to translate that art over time. It's going to be useful. It's going to be meaningful. Um, and that doesn't require hundreds of millions of dollars. Although hundreds of millions of dollars can be fantastic and wonderful and create moving experiences that can have that level of story, they're by no means required to make something really thought through and clever and meaningful and exciting. Because so you see like a lot of books that are on either tech, you know, technical producing or option properties, but there isn't a lot of books that say, while you're producing this web series, this is how you could get shoot, get extra assets to use later. This is how you could be able to do it. But I think there's eventually going to be a framework where in the same way you break down budgets, you also figure out how to tell stories that, that are expanded out of the web series. Like this is how you're gonna manage a Twitter and there's gonna be a, more of a formula to it so it doesn't seem so mysterious and scary to indie creators. It's true, but it's also about finding that creativity, finding your ability to improvise, your ability to, to do what Bugs Bunny or Captain Jack Sparrow are excellent at doing. Figure out what you have at hand and how to use it to the greatest effect. There are a lot of free tools out there. There are a lot of things that don't require more than your willingness to write them or collaborate on them or just put people into spaces. And thinking about what your story is truly, what it's about, and how you can do that, that's something that, admittedly, we would all love to be able to do for a budget. We uh, Being able to pay your rent and put it all this together in a way that is able to sustain the amount that you need to eat and to pay your rent and to you know pay everyone you're working with is an essential part of building a piece of creative work. But the backbone of it, the thinking, the building a strategy that makes sense. Um, that's something that you don't need a degree, you don't need 15 years of experience, and you can do while you have another profession. And I think there are a lot of people out there who have the desire, but don't have the, the sense that the hustle, the ability to make it happen, the ability to make it work is something that hasn't occurred to them, or they haven't met someone who's done it and given them permission in their minds to do it yet. So you got to build. You got to build out the role models first, and then yeah. like. And Lizzie Benendires is a perfect uh, example of what you can do uh, on a low budget. Absolutely, and I hope that one or two people are inspired by my hipster dinosaur movie as well, because that's that's really the that's really the goal that we had. We had been working very hard on these fantastic, wonderful, huge, big budget projects, but uh, my collaborator Steel Philippek and I, we both came out of that space of doing it because you love it and doing it with whatever is at hand, and we wanted to be able to show something about what the process is like 
that didn't require that huge initial investment. And I think with the new crowdfunding stuff that's coming together, um, the sort of uh, the the mix between producing and entrepreneurism is a really new and exciting space where a lot of people who haven't been a part of the independent film scene or a part of the transmedia scene are going to find new ways into the creative industries and create work that we haven't imagined yet. Uh, you bring up a good point of crowdfunding yeah. because you don't need a few individuals that are out of touch with technology and when people demand when it comes to storytelling. You're dealing directly with the fans and with this type of experiences you have a much deeper relationship and those type of relationships are, are the ones that are the most valuable on these platforms to raise money absolutely and it's your first line for building your audience if you're going out and proving yourself to your audience at the first business thing you're doing um, you have the potential to build an audience that is loyal and engaged and integrated as fully into the creative work as you can. Um, there's a great amount of potential for participation, not just in terms of being able to raise your funds, but being able to start getting people involved. And that's something that's going to prove itself with quality work with careful thought behind how you're engaging and what you're offering, whether that's um, you know items or participation or creating your own avatars or t-shirts, or it's actually being a part of the financial infrastructure that supports an intellectual property. These are the, the next step questions we have to ask ourselves about crowdfunding and about creative work. Because informally, a lot of us have been funding from the crowd of rich aunts and uncles or all of our friends pitching in however much they have at, at hand. You know, we, we did several shoots where we just threw in whatever money we would have spent on beer and made sure that the project came together. Um, but at the same time, we're now finding more formal ways to uh, uh, um, articulate the business of crowdfunding. And we're finding that it's scaling. Uh, projects like the Veronica Mars movie, projects like Lizzie Bennet Diaries, if you find the audience and you give them ways to participate and your work is good, you may very well find success. And you can and almost have a relationship. It's almost like you're a farmer and then you're growing uh, this community and then you keep maintaining it and you build it out. And because of that, it's more successful. We had this individual who runs Pledge Music and they have kind of a crowdfunding model where they musicians sell music, uh, pre-sell it to be able to produce their album or go on tour. And they were able to find that even small uh, a band of small following if they're really engaged they're able to put a lot more money than a band of a bigger following so it's almost like there probably be new tools to measure uh, this community management to know exactly what's the right budget you need to raise and I think there'll become more of a science to it I think it is but it, there is also an art to, con to considering how your business plan is structured in that way and there are some people whose work is going to lend itself towards larger angel investment or work with the studio and there are others whose projects are very clear and they want that full creative control to start and they want to build from a space where they know what they're doing and they know how to get it done and can start on a more modest budget that's easier to, to crowdfund or to fundraise. Um, what I think is interesting about it is that the sort of um, the uh, the idea that there is a huge unknown mystery science that goes into how you should structure your creative business is beginning to, to come away 
and we're seeing more transparency in how producers are talking and how even some executives are talking about how they're structuring their plans around the business of making their projects. Uh, whether it's coming from crowdfunding or it's coming from folks like Ted Hope um, talking about producing and entrepreneurism, um, we're beginning to see that there are a lot of big questions that are part of the creative industry and transmedia especially um, of how you develop work and with multiple platforms you have the ability to have different business motivations behind each platform you know a free platform like Twitter or Facebook is more likely to not give you revenue than any number of other platforms but other platforms may give you more audience engagement and audience retention than one that might have a higher revenue point being able to mix them in a way that's appropriate to your story world, being able to choose platforms to build and sustain that project over time, finding ways to sponsor, find sponsorship, finding partners who would be able to be interesting connections, not just for marketing, but potentially for social outreach. If your project has a, you know, a topical social uh, quality within the story that might be suitable to talking to a nonprofit, talking to a community organization, seeing how you can connect those dots and build an ecosystem of sustainable business around your story that can fit with the story you're telling and why you're telling it. That's really exciting. And, and it's something where I've been very surprised how creative building a business strategy could feel. Because again, coming out of a, you know community theater, I never anticipated that I would enjoy the business of building a creative project as much as I do. We see a, uh, a lot of investments in YouTube networks, Machinima and all these different ones are getting a lot of uh, money. And you also, at the same time, you see Lizzie Bennett diaries, you see all sorts of different transmedia experiences that have gotten traction. But do you think that those investments will ever go focus on IP versus almost like the platform on top of the platform? I think that it's an interesting question. I think that you're going to find, as an audience member, you're going, you're going to find things that you're more attracted to based on IP. You're going to end up on a platform regardless. Um, I think that the next five to ten years are going to be absolutely fascinating in how we look at where investment is done, how production is done, and for whom. Uh, you know, you, you just saw um, a day or two ago, Sony announced that they're going to be producing a show for Netflix. They're the first of the major studios to be partnered with Netflix to produce original content. Um, that shows an interesting skew towards that kind of content that Netflix has displayed from the beginning. Um, you see things like uh, DreamWorks investment in awesomeness TV, uh, which is a huge, uh, huge amount of funds being put towards a YouTube network. Um, and they have an audience that seems to back up those numbers to a certain degree. Um, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on investment in Silicon Valley. I'm not pr going to pretend to be an expert of, on um, investments at that level or how the numbers around those those particular purchases or investments were built. Um, but I think that we're going to see a wide range of new production houses coming out that are banking on their content. Uh, you're seeing a lot of these platforms and uh, like YouTube um, finding new ways to monetize. Uh, 
subscriptions to channels, for example, has been uh, has been innovated recently. Um, you see Vimeo building their on demand. Uh, they have, I think, still one of the best uh, splits in the in the business uh, for filmmakers who are using their on demand service to uh, to stream their content. Um, you're seeing a Netflix for documentary being built uh, out of the Canadian Media Fund, uh, where they're going to have curated documentaries for stre to stream internationally, a new home for documentary when you don't see the same amount of documentary being shown on Netflix or a diff uh, that same amount being, being uh, that market being served in a different way. Um, it's, to circle back to your question, I think that there are going to be a number of different business models and depending on who you are and what you want to do, um, you'll be able to find different investment. Uh, you're going to find people who are more interested in investing in slates of IP, I think, the same way you've seen it throughout Hollywood uh, history, um, just because the entertainment industry is a high risk industry. For every success you have, you are likely to have two or three flops. There is an amazing book on producing that just came out, Must, Maybes, and Nevers, which is by the legendary David Picker, who worked at UA for years. He greenlit the Beatles movies. He greenlit the first James Bonds. And he has a, such an articulate way of talking about what the business of running a studio and being part of that is about. And a lot of it was about creative collaboration it was about being able to think creatively and also to be able to realize that you're working in an industry with a lot of risk for every story you think is amazing and you want to put your 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 energy behind you may not find an audience and there are more ways to find an audience now than ever before but that audience will also tell you if your idea is terrible and they'll tell you quickly that's a good thing because as a creator, if you have the ability to roll with it, it tells you what you need to work on and it tells you what you need to focus on. But it also means that as creators, it helps to think a little bit more like business people sometimes in as much as I would love to pursue some of my crazier, wilder, out there ideas. I know that some of them are significantly less likely to find funding immediately. And I may have to figure out a way to bootstrap it by finding the three or four other people in the world who have the means to be able to put it together. Things like crowdfunding, things like um, uh, it, angel list for entrepreneurism, uh, finding one for creative projects that exist to find angel investors may come to pass. Um, it's an interesting question, and I think it's one I'm really excited to find out the solutions to as, as time marches us all forward. You're able to get more information on, a, on an individual who watches Lizzie Bennet Diaries than goes to see a movie in the theaters because of all the analytics on social media and YouTube. So I think the creators probably have an advantage over a lot of traditional media on understanding their fans. I think that's true, but I also think that you, you, when you're working in a traditional media marketplace, you're finding more and more people working in those companies that have an understanding of the value of that data. And companies are more and more able to understand what data they can find and how to use it. I think it's far from a perfect science. And I can talk at some length again about the question of, is the data you're getting from someone that's being tracked 
objectifying them or inviting them. Um, I think there's a big question that comes to mind whenever there's a conversation about data and beyond even our concerns for privacy about how useful is this data. Being able to determine market demographics is obviously hugely important for a big firm and, and it may be hugely important to being able to get investment from different investors or different uh, industries. But as a creator, you have certain choices about what data you take in and what data you share. And I've found that when I'm looking at an audience, even looking at something that is fairly narrative and fairly insightful, like the actual tweets from people, um, the content of what they're sharing is more valuable over time to building a business strategy than necessarily knowing their age, sex, location, all of the rest. Um, not to say that they're mutually exclusive, but being able to look at what is freely shared and integrating that into the thought process behind how you want to build the next part of your project. What did they love? What didn't they love? What would they want to tell you about the work you're doing? It doesn't mean you have to listen to every obscene tweet about what you, they hated, but there are definitely going to be nuggets of real insight that are worth listening to and worth finding ways for you to invite people to give because that freely shared information is going to give you insight that builds trust and builds the conversation back and forth between your audience and the creator but also the story and the people who are going to love it the people who are going to become the people who want to share this with their children and their grandchildren yeah it's a uh, you know speaking of conversation twitter has started to bring uh, audiences back to appointment viewing it's almost it's almost as much as we go forward, technology sometimes brings us back to how you know we used to watch television. Well, I think that there's a there's a sort of falsity that I that people aren't watching television or people aren't going to the movies. The number of people and the opportunities to engage with stories on different platforms has changed, but people still go to the movies and people still watch television. They may watch the sort of thing they would have watched on television through different distribution channels but there's a place for long-form drama there's a place for the well thought through dramatic feature and there's a place for the big blockbuster IMAX ready 3D film um, one of the most exciting things that I read recently was that Gravity has made more money in an October than any other feature film and it is without a doubt a 3D high technology feature film but it also is a great character-driven drama. It's action, but if there weren't the intensity in the characterization and what Sandra Bullock brings to the table, all of the truly amazing technical work in the building the 3D for the film and how that's staged wouldn't match up. And that's something... Yeah, that you're right. There needs to be a human story, too. It's not just the technology that uh, revolves around it. The reason I brought up Twitter is that because there is that human element that conversation and i've noticed with some of the big shows that people are connecting with the stories and need to express how they feel in real time so it's almost like a sporting event that even though you could watch it on demand or through another platform but watching it as its first release is almost like has a, a power that makes the audience connect with the characters and other people watching it and that's valuable to advertisers because we weren't able to monetize the content in the same way um, on other platforms online as much of the amount of return on investment that they could get with the advertisers 
when people are watching it currently once it's actually premieres? Absolutely. Um, one of my favorite um, social media advertisement stories, um, what um, around the end of the summer, of course, the Sharknado hit us all. And Sharknado is a fascinating story of a B-movie. And uh, because I made a hipster dinosaur film, I assume you all know by now that I love a good B-movie. Uh, what Sharknado did that was interesting was Sci-Fi announced that it wanted to focus on interactive uh, appeal uh, in its upfronts this year. And while Sharknado, the film on television, when it premiered, did okay numbers for a sci-fi feature film. It pulled in something like 357,000 uh, Twitter mentions that night. And then it was reshown the next Thursday, and the TV ratings went up accordingly. I, With my friends, I ended up doing a Sharknado viewing party off my DVR within seven days. Um, but what's really compelling is on the third showing of Sharknado, because it was... It was popular enough for sci-fi not just to do a, a repeat of it, but a three-peat of it. It broke the rating records. The, the syndicated, the, the, the third showing within three weeks broke the records of the previous, uh, the previous showings. And it's interesting to see how building the audience played into that. There's an expectation that the premiere is going to be the biggest showing you can have. And... We're seeing examples where that isn't always the case. When you're building an audience, and you're building an audience in the modern communications environment, you have to consider how that long tail is going to grow. Um, when you look at something like Lizzie Bennet Diaries, um, the audience doesn't start huge. You want to be able to go back and rewatch it. And people are still finding Lizzie Bennet Diaries today and being able to see the entire show from its beginning in a way that is comfortable to view. Uh, you know, people talk about Breaking Bad and the success of binge watching on Netflix because it still holds up after the premiere. Uh, the story is big enough and interesting enough and compelling enough to make you want to go back and see where it started. And after that show's close, not only are you going to have a spinoff from, uh, with Saul, but you're going to have a real commercial life for that show on Netflix, on DVD, and in the future because the work that has been done was built to be good enough to be able to be packaged in that way for long-term for long sustainable uh, payment. You're not going to see as many people buying it all at once, but you're going to see an income stream from it in perpetuity because new people are going to want to find it. The, a global audience is going to want to seek out good work. Um, and that's something to consider when you're looking at the idea that the launch is everything. How can you build that audience over time to be a sustainable audience for a business proposition and how is that work going to live after the excitement of getting it out the door? It's a it's trying to create new ways to get into the story. And Netflix was, was one way. There's all sorts of social media. And speaking of it as a business, it's also an art. So there's a balance of how do you uh, navigate that. Uh, because of that, what kind of changes should be made to the writing room to be able to incorporate uh, social media from the beginning so you're able to uh, take the content and then distribute it and have those ways in that are, are part of it versus slapped on. All right, we have some social media, 
but you know we'll just do it like as an afterthought how do you really revolutionize the the actual initial creation of and and the casting and all that characters from the very beginning so later on even if people miss the first time there's still ways into the story that's a really interesting question um being able to build your story out uh, to do a little bit of pre-pre-production so that you have a spine around the work that you're building that allows you to see how stories might take tangents or go in different directions and how you can follow things that happen around your, your main driving platform story is a good place to start. If you all know where you need to go, there's the opportunity to go in different ways to reach the same point and to provide new opportunities to write pieces for different platforms. Um, the other thing ha is, and always is going to be, what's best for the story you want to tell. There are some stories that have a place on one platform and should be seen as beautifully on that platform as possible. And I, I think you could even make an argument that Gravity is one. I think it's one of the few feature films I've really recommended that people go see in a theater in 3D because it's built so beautifully for that place that it, it really is an experience unto itself in that place that will be different on a, on a TV screen. And I don't know if building something out around that beyond that story is important or is meaningful to that type of story. So having the conversation and understanding what is meaningful and what's going to be a beautifully artistic addition to the work is essential. So who um, should be in the TV writer's room that while, this, while they're trying to break story, so is it a, so, someone who understands social media? Would it be like, you'd say a transmedia producer? Should they be sitting in from as the story's being created so they could simultaneously develop their, their strategy for different platforms? I think a transmedia producer is a healthy part of almost any tra franchise. And at least consultation with one as you're starting is a sensible business proposition. To be able to understand what your story is about, to be able to build that long-term sustainability in, but also to be able to critically evaluate what platforms or what amount of work around it is going to be artistically fruitful and commercially fruitful. Um, you want something to be commercially fruitful, but if it isn't artistically done, if it isn't effective storytelling, you're not going to see the same results as you would get if it had built, been built carefully and with that in mind. Um, as far as the writer's room is concerned, I think we're going to see a lot of shifts coming up as people who are truly social media savvy and who have grown up with this sort of pervasive media marketplace are finding more and more positions in that space. Um, whether it's as simple as letting the kid in the corner take advantage of his idea to write a web series or you know these two these two actors really 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 want to do something uh, that that is funny and allows secondary characters to take a role and have their own spin-off piece that could go online that's a great way to do it um, there have been people on sets doing behind the scenes footage and special features for decades now and giving them a little bit of the opportunity to take their own footage, to be able to take uh, actors and let them improvise, uh, to be able to really build uh, content that may be useful and to experiment a little bit is a very interesting way to start the start this ball rolling. Uh, on several shows I know that are starting up, they've been in in big talks with showrunners to embed people on set to be able to take that footage to be able to do that sort of work improvising with the actors um 
But it's going to take the success of a number of shows doing that and a lot of experimentation for that to really integrate with traditional media. Um, because you look at this, you look at the CPM online for advertising, and it's a lot lower than on TV. The model hasn't changed yet, so it seems like it's in uh, it's a, it's in the best interest of these TV creators to have a very powerful strategy that make it important to watch it while everybody's watching it and make it this it's experience that lives beyond the show for for ways people could get in and also ways to sustain them to keep watching it, making it. Uh, engaging in that way and have a way to keep the community growing and not shrinking. Yeah. And and what we've seen a lot in the past few years, looking at how um, television has been adapting to the variety of media platforms that exist at their fingertips, um, shows like Top Chef, where you have a very sort of traditional TV show, one hour a week, challenge reality show. Um, they've been winning awards right and left for working with Last Chance Kitchen, which first was sort of like a redemption opportunity for contestants that would be online in the week between episodes. This last season of Top Chef Masters, they had a battle between the top the uh, chefs, sous chefs, uh, where the the uh, competition on the online show affected the outcome or the start point for the master chefs in their season. And then in uh, Top Chef New Orleans that's coming up, they have a preseason web series that's that's going up to the premiere of the show where Padma Lakshmi goes around New, uh, New Orleans and eats some food. And ultimately, the person who she thinks is the best is going to become a contestant on the show. These are all ways to bring more content out that are taking advantage of the sets they already have, the, the contestants and the characters they already have, and they're being creative about how they're putting it together. Um, is this the right fit for every show? Is every production team going to want to do exactly that? No. But beginning to think, asking the questions about what would fit for this show and what could we do with a limited additional budget is something that can keep the audience engaged and part of even traditional reality or nonfiction or fictional TV shows with episodic models um, in, in new ways and in interesting ways and in ways that take advantage of what is out there for production teams to make use of to bring to, to elevate their work to be able to create new avenues of income new avenues for advertising and find ways to reach their audience year-round as opposed to just during the season rollout yeah there's there's a lot more of there's a lot more thoughts that have to go into uh making it work it's like why are they going to watch it when it's released what gives you value then how are new audiences going to get into it it's there's so much uh, so much differences than you would say years ago where it's like we create a great show we market it now there's there's so much more ways in and I think that it lends itself to validating the credit of being a transmedia producer and I think that that's why that that was put together in the first place the reality that there are new specialties around building these processes that haven't existed as a as part of the production team before and I think that part of it is amazing for original work and part of it's essential for looking at traditional institutions that are adapting to the new media environment, the new communications environment. Um, you know, that there's a lot of work to be done to be able to get interesting stories told well across multiple platforms, whether you're coming from a traditional film or television background or starting with original work with, gosh, all of the tools imaginable <laughs> at your fingertips. Um, I can't imagine what 
you know, people coming into the industry now when I've been in it for 10 some years, um, look at what we're doing and say, uh, when I came in, it was sort of, it was, uh, unbelievable to me that people didn't think about the ways they could connect the stories in licensed products that they didn't, it didn't occur to them already that that would be something that would help, help, um, make a better project. Um, and I think the work that's going to be done by artists who are, you know, getting out of school or who are in high school now is going to prove models that we've been talking about for years, uh, that we're going to find creators who are swimming like fish in the pervasive media environment that will be able to do things both creatively and in terms of the business that we haven't thought of yet. But I think that it's a really exciting time to be a creator, to be a producer, to be telling stories and it's a matter of getting out there and doing it and seeing what you can make and seeing what people like and being willing to hear what they actually have to say about it. And there is still a lot of work to be done to communicate the importance of it, even though the, the industry is changing. But even though all that's happening, there are still people that their heads in the sand. It's true. And, and it's cyclical. And I, I've been through a number of cycles where, you know, production takes a long time. It's not as simple as putting out something on Twitter and say and and it, producing something big, producing a big story, producing a transmedia experience takes time. And so, if you're producing something that's going entirely onto Twitter, uh, the feedback loop, the ability to integrate story, to be able to integrate critique from that, is so fast. And as audiences, we expect that sort of immediate response. And as producers and creators, we're dealing with response times that aren't in the seconds or minutes, but literally years. And it takes a lot of patience. And patience is something that, I don't know, I'm not terribly good at. Um, but you have to be able to have if you're going to be able to do something big and meaningful and rely on other people to be part of your creative process. And a lot of being where you are in the space um, building transmedia, knowing you want to make this kind of work, requires that you're going to be have to talk about it over and over again. And even when we're not talking about the big questions of transmedia and multi-platform production and how do we finance this, being able to talk about your story and why you want to tell it this way and why you're telling the story to begin with, why is it meaningful, why are the platforms meaningful, is something you're going to have to communicate day in, day out for months and years and probably the entire time afterwards and every story is different the motivations the reasons every artistic choice you make is going to be different on project to project and being able to communicate that and learn how to communicate it effectively is the most powerful tool you can have as a producer or a creator and you say communicate it effectively what are some of the most funny misconceptions you have about what a transmedia producer does you go all right i gotta be patient i gotta hold someone's hand and obviously respectfully but just things <laughs> that you hear that they almost make you want to just like chuckle um the thing that that i find uh still is that sometimes people think i just write the twitter feed um and i actually i know people who are incredibly uh, incredibly eloquent and incredibly talented writers for twitter who get paid to write narrative art for Twitter. That is its own thing, and it's something that, frankly, if I, if someone said, uh, I was a film, asked me if I was a film producer, I wouldn't say, 
that I was the one who was putting film in the canister or transferring hard drives. Although plenty of film producers do that. Um, the idea that it's as simple as that or that it's as direct as that, that the world of multi-platform technology and narrative technology is as direct or as straightforward as, oh, I'm just going to write on Twitter what the movie said, um, that can sometimes be a little breathtaking. Um, part of it is that it's always going to be a complex question. What is it that I do? I, I produce projects that exist over multiple platforms. I steward the story across them. But all of those stories and all of those pieces of business are different. Each enterprise, each IP is its own enterprise with its own specific strategies, specific business points, and specific narrative points. And you have to be able to be expert with all of the whys, all of the hows, and all of the people who you're going to have to work with because you're going to be collaborating. And one of the through lines that is actually kind of helpful is everyone is probably going to ask you what you do and why you're there. And that is true for any producer, and I think it's definitely true for a transmedia producer. And you could compare it to an architect. Somebody goes, oh, does an architect only build buildings? Do you only do this? But you're like, no, I have a certain skill sets and certain lens to see the world add value to these developments, but not every uh, job is the same. Yeah. It's essential to know that, no, I don't think anytime soon the idea is going to be immediately received with complete understanding because it is still new. We're dealing with something that is not decades and decades old as a concept, even though as a practice, it's been around since art started. And part of the necessity of the job is being able to explain to people with specific specialties and specific interests why it's important to collaborate and why it's important to collaborate with these people on this piece of the project because we are all engaged in this thing together. Understanding the bigger picture and being able to communicate it, communicate why, what it means, and how each part is fitting together, and being able to communicate the work that this producer is doing to the other and back and forth is part of that process. Um, being able to explain how it is that you're doing this and why you're doing it and what the purpose of it is, is part of the job. And it can be frankly pretty fun. And it's the conversation about it has been something that has been enjoyable because it challenges you on a daily basis to think about what it is you're doing, why you're there, what the purpose is and what, the use for the work is. Um, it's harder to be in love with any piece of technology when you have to be talking about the story and the meaning and why that choice was made and why it's a good choice and why it isn't and why this wasn't as good a choice. Um, being able to think from that big holistic view is really helpful and being able to talk with people who are in who, from different specialties and have more specific views of work is essential to make sure that that is a healthy project, to make sure that it's a healthy business proposition, and you know, to make sure that you still feel the same way about the work as you did when you first came in. And we talk about all these different collaborators and you know, individuals that control IP, and they want to obviously make this a successful business, but people are scared of change. They 
people are always, you know, worried are they spending money in the right area. But at the same time, isn't fear a great motivator too? Because our media landscape is completely changing. So you could probably point to major IP that has failed because the rights holders didn't understand transmedia storytelling. I think that's true, but I also think you can take it a little bit back and, and say fear can be an intensely powerful motivator. But whether you're acting from that fear in a short-term way or thinking about the long-term, like are you going to crawl up? Let's say you're stuck in a hole with a bunch of people. Let's say you're a lobster in a pot. Are you going to climb up over the other lobsters and maybe get out and everyone else is, is stuck in the pot? Or are you going to figure out a way to get everyone out of the pot? Is this something you're going to have? Is this a decision you're going to have to make from fear over and over again? What I mean is by I mean by motivating others to act, like let's say for instance, you if you have a if you have the map to tell all the lobsters to get out of the bucket, <laughs> because they you'd show them that they're going to end up becoming uh, on the plate. Uh, they're more motivated to get out of the bucket. They're more made it motivated to get out of the bucket, but um, knowing that a problem exists and figuring out a sustainable, equitable solution are two different processes. And uh, there, there's a great conversation about um, complex theory and problem solving called the Knaivin Method, C-Y-N-I-F-I-N, I think, mm -hmm. um, done by Dave Snowden, who is a fantastic Welsh uh, complex systems expert um, that talks about different types of decision-making, whether it's a simple problem, a complicated problem, a chaotic problem, or a complex problem, and how different thinking uh, acts differently in, in, when the situations are different. Not all problems are simple, not all problems are complex, uh, and if you approach them all with one way of thinking, you're going to end up in trouble, because they'll not, it won't be an effective way to solve every problem. I see, you can't use uh, fear as a motivator every time to get, every, to get everybody on board because it may not be fear here. It might just be to expand the story. You know, another person might just see the financial benefits but versus trying to protect something that they're scared of losing. So each person have, is an individual and you have to motivate them differently. You have to be able to think about the long-term structure and the mutual benefits that are available. And that as, as part of the producer's job, being able to identify what the needs of each of the invested stakeholders and invested parties are. Uh, not just those who have financially invested, but those who have creatively invested. Um, you know, whether you're talking about someone who has a very financial mindset or someone who will spit on you if you talk about a budget because they're an incredible artist and their concern is entirely about the creative work, um, you have to be able to know what each person really wants out of it and how to build that motivation system in a way that's sensible. But also, everyone's goal is to make the work ex as good as it can be and as successful as it can be. But is that in a short-term period? Does everyone plan to leave after three months? Or is it something where they potentially want to work on this project for the rest of their lives? And considering those different pieces um, for a corporation like a studio or a network, they may want to be able to build an IP that can last for decades, that can become evergreen, where they can find, you know, they can pay salaries off this project for time, for all of the time in the future. Um, and thinking about building a story world for something on that scope requires complex thinking and requires 
a mindset that can't just be based on the fear of losing market share in a year. It has to be based on the idea that you are building something substantial and sustainable that can last for a long time. Some stories, some pieces of work, they, they're going to go out and they're going to go off. And that can be highly profitable and that can be excellent. And that is a perfectly reasonable way to set up your business. But knowing what your goal is, know what the business goal is, know what the production goal is, and know that if you're going to do that, that's a choice that you should think around. Uh, being able to build something lasting requires more work and more strategy at the beginning, but can be in the long term more profitable. Um, these are the choices that you should be asking yourself when you're thinking about how you want to make your story. Uh, platforms depend on what kind of sustainability you're looking for, whether you're looking for that huge initial push or you're looking for something that can continue to grow over time into something that people can find years in the future and have the same relevance. Um, I guess that's, that's my thinking, you know, fear is a good short-term motivator and it can help people identify a problem but you know like you can see in marketing or or if you're talking about audience engagement um, you can pulse something in the short term but is it going to last is it going to keep people there over time what is the purpose of this moment what's the thing you're communicating and and if you're a storyteller and you can use that and help people understand why they might want to think in the long term, why the short term might not be the best for them. There's so many layers to really working it out and really getting the whole team on board. So each uh, project you have is a new challenge, which is probably what makes it exciting. Absolutely. And every project is going to have a totally different set of creative parameters, business parameters, and personalities. Uh, but what's wonderful is the ability to work with creative people to solve creative problems and to put something together that's going to be bigger than everyone at the end. And that's really, you know, that's the fun. That's why we're in this business. And it's something that I think has the potential to really reinvigorate people because I've seen it happen. When you start thinking creatively about your business, when you start thinking creatively about your production, when you start thinking creatively about the story you want to tell and why you want to tell it, um, it can bring some of the love back. And ultimately, that's what I hope that we can share through creative process, being able to find a way to love what we're doing and to challenge ourselves and have fun doing it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. You can check me out at petercats.net, it's K-A-T-Z, and you can email me at catsfilms at gmail.com.